What is it like being married to an alcoholic minister who is beloved of his congregation? How might it cause you to behave in crazy ways? Welcome to episode 340 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Marilyn, Brian, Virginia, Ashley Marie, Karen, Ellen, and Michaela. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Marilyn, Brian, Virginia, Ashley Marie, Karen, Ellen, and Michaela for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps a few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. Today, I'm sharing with you a talk by Barbara Kay, recorded in 1993. I listened to this recently, and I thought she captured so well the ways in which we, the partners of alcoholics, can be and act crazier than our alcoholic loved ones. A quick reminder, all of what Barbara says here is her experience and her way of expressing it. I hope something she says touches you, because it definitely touched me. Thank you. I am Barbara from Montgomery, Alabama, grateful recovering Alanon. Uh, I wanted to get here yesterday by 2 o'clock so I could get in on most of your programs. I did get here for the 8 o'clock session, so I didn't miss everything. But yesterday turned into a hectic day for me. I woke up with my face like this and uh, have an infected bone in my cheek from a tooth that has to come out, and I am in dentistry. I want this one? Either one? What one? I'm Alan, and I do what I'm told. <laughs> okay. And... Uh, of course, they wanted to do something right away, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm leaving town. So that's why you see me with these glasses on. Believe me, I look worse with them off. I have a shiner. Told Russell I was going to tell you all I was a battered wife, because that's what I looked like. But I look a little better today. But if you'll excuse the dark glasses, I'll appreciate it. Now, in Al-Anon, we tell our story very much the same way they do in AA. How it was what happened, and how it is now. Now, there are people here that have heard my story. And they're going to hear the same story again, because how it was is how it was. And it's one of the first things you learn in Al-Anon is that you cannot change what is past. What happened is what happened. How it is now continues to change and always changes for the better as long as I stay with my program. And I want to emphasize that, as long as I stay with my program. I have learned that I can allow the alcoholic in my life to work his own program. So that's given me a lot of spare time. 
to work my own because early on I thought I had to keep track of him and make sure he was working his program properly. And I didn't really have a lot of time to work my own. I went to Al-Anon for a long time thinking I was there to find out how to deal with my alcoholic. I did not know I was there for myself. Once I found that out, and once I learned that there was not an elevator to serenity, that I had to use the steps, I started to get well. Another exciting thing that happened to me yesterday was I had a new granddaughter. Number 13. I've had three new ones this year. <clears throat> but the things that Al-Anon has helped me with this year are my mother in uh, February had congestive heart failure. And uh, my brother has been there, went immediately and stayed for a few weeks. My sister has been there. My turn comes up in two weeks. And although I have learned, and my alcoholic has told me this, I have learned how to examine myself and how to deal with others and with myself in every instance except with my mother, who still makes me feel two years old. And both my brother and my sister have called me since they were there and said, Barbara, don't go. But Barbara's going, and she's taking her one-day-at-a-time book with her, and she's going to some Al-Anon meetings while she's there. And a week after, we heard that Mother had congestive heart failure, and she lives alone down in the Florida Keys, and I want to bring her to Montgomery, but she won't come. She'll say, you know, I'm the mother, you're the child, I'll live where I want to live. But she has only three children and expects one of us to be there all the time. And it's not possible for us. But we'll work that out. I have a daughter, Amy, who is married and has three small children. Last week, she has two girls that last week, one was four and one was three, and she has a little boy that was born in January. Within two days of the call about my mother, Amy called. Her little three-year-old had uh, was losing her balance all the time. She thought she had an ear infection. She said, I've got to take her to the doctor. I should have taken her before, but with the new baby, she doesn't seem to hurt or anything, so I just put it off. But she's really hurting herself falling down. I've got to take her. Within 30 minutes of the time, that she took that baby into the doctor's office. The doctor said, I believe the child has brain tumor. They did a CAT scan, and she does not. But they tested her Wednesday for muscular dystrophy. And I asked you to pray for that child for me. And now I'm going to tell you my story. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do all that. I have eight children. And I'm not going to tell you about all of them. Some of you know my Alateen children. Three of my children are fortunate enough to be young enough when I found Al-Anon to go to Alateen. And I'm not going to tell you it was easy to get them there because it was not. 
they went to me with an, to an Al-Anon meeting with me one one time when they had been out of town with my oldest child and I hadn't seen them for two weeks. I went to pick them up and said, I need to go to an Al-Anon meeting. And they said, but mom, you just got here and we haven't seen you for two weeks. I said, come with. Come with me. So my oldest daughter and my three youngest children came with me to an Al-Anon meeting. We lived in Cincinnati at the time. And after that meeting, my son, Timothy, who some of you have heard speak, said, Mom, I want to go to Alateen. You've been begging me to go to Alateen. And I've been telling you, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I just want to get on with a normal life. But I need Alateen. Because of that Al-Anon meeting where they talked about letting go and letting God. And I had three <clears throat> terrific little Alateens <clears throat> that are very well-adjusted human beings today. And I thank Alateen for that. Our first years of marriage, there was no drinking. Well, people were kicked out of the seminary for drinking, and we were in seminary. Our first three years in the ministry. So after our five years of seminary, there was no drinking. I had five children, but there was no drinking. We went off from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we spent the first two and a half years of our ministry with five children to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, my alcoholic was to serve a congregation there that was the largest in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod at the time. We had 2,600 members. And it was a professional congregation, an urban professional congregation. And when we got there, one of the architects in the congregation invited us to dinner in his home. And we went. And he served martinis. Now, Russell had one, and he said, I liked that. I'm going to have another one. And our first night in Milwaukee as the new pastor and his wife, Russell, got drunk. And I had never seen Russell drunk. And I felt sorry for him. And I was embarrassed for him. That's good, Alan, on too. Get embarrassed first. I'll tell you what, that's one of the greatest gifts you've given me, that I need never be embarrassed by another person's behavior that I am responsible for me. But you'll learn in my story that it took me a long time to learn any of that good stuff. We were in Milwaukee for four years, and it was during those four years that we decided, well, we're going to have to entertain, so we're going to have to start keeping liquor in the house. We didn't have liquor in the house before that. For entertaining. And those four years in Milwaukee, that's why liquor was in the house. For entertaining. We moved to northern Illinois four years later with six children. And while we were moving in, Russell said, now wait a minute before you unpack anything and uh, we get things put away. Let's decide where we're going to have the liquor cabinet. Well, we didn't have a liquor cabinet. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, just let me choose a cupboard first, you know, where it's handy when we entertain that I don't have to get in that cupboard above the 
refrigerator where it always was. It really wasn't a nuisance to get up there. So he chose his cabinets. Uh, two years later, he had a bigger one made. It wasn't big enough, but that's, he chose his cabinet. And uh, we started entertaining, and we were entertained. And then we started having cocktails when we weren't entertaining. You know, we thought, we're really getting cool, you know, really up there and having cocktails before dinner and thought that was neat. And then I noticed Russ was beginning to drink, come home at noon and have a drink. Then I noticed he was having a beer instead of orange juice with his breakfast. Then I noticed he wasn't having any breakfast. But I also noticed there was something wrong in our relationship. We had seven children now, and two of them were off to college. And I thought, well, that's the way it is. You know, we just don't have all these little kids around here anymore. Uh, we have children in college. And things don't stay the same, I guess. But I really didn't like what had happened to our relationship but did not connect it with the alcohol. The story I'm telling you about alcohol is all in looking back. Now, I didn't stay that way. There came a time when I knew it was the alcohol, and I knew it was my duty to make him stop drinking it. But at this time, on the... New Year's Eve of 1969, I thought things are going to get better. I have something wonderful to tell Russell. He's going to be all excited. So at the stroke of midnight, 1968, at the stroke of midnight, with the church bells ringing, I said, Russell, it's going to be a marvelous year. I'm going to have a baby. And he was not thrilled. I mean he was not thrilled. Now, I don't want you to think that I suppose that having a baby was going to fix our relationship. After you've had seven, you know they don't fix relationships. But I was delighted that we were going to have another child. And I don't know. I, You know, I've four-stepped. I've done everything else. Both Russell and I adore that now 16-year-old child. But why I was so ecstatic about having her, like I'd never had one, I don't know, except I needed something to fill that gap that I knew was there, which is a poor reason to have a baby. And if I did it for that reason, I wasn't conscious of it. But when that baby was born, I thought everything was going to be fine. Russell came in the day after she was born and said, I'm so glad this baby's been born. And I said, oh, Russell, I knew you would feel that way eventually. He said, well, I sure do because you were such a bitch while you carried her. And I was a bitch from that day on. That was my name. By the time Sarah Elizabeth was two years old, we were in bad trouble with alcohol. Really, really bad trouble. A lot of things 
had happened in our life that I was now able to contribute to alcohol. And a lot of worse things were going to happen. I knew it. One day, I went into the living room, woke Russell from a drunk, told him I was taking him to the hospital, that he needed help, and I was going to see that he got it. I had called a psychiatrist, said I was bringing my husband over. He went with me. And I sat there and I cried for two hours telling this psychiatrist all the things that were happening in our lives. And I don't mean I tears running down my cheeks. I mean boo-hoo crying. And he looked at Russell, who had put his collar on before we left, and said, well, Russell, what do you have to say about this? And Russell shook his head and said, Dr. Henry, I am so worried about Barbara. She behaves like this all the time. She has the children all upset. She has my congregation all upset. Could you keep her here and help her? And he did. And I resented that. But I did get out with a clean bill of health. He said, oh, you know, he said, you just needed a rest, Barbara. He said, well, did I have a nervous breakdown? No. Well, am I a manic depressive? No. He said, we can't find a label for you. You just needed to be here a while. I, uh, but I suggest you don't go home to Russell. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, we've talked with Russell. And Russell doesn't intend to change any of the things he does. And I don't think you could handle it. And I said, well, I'm going home to Russell. Russell is sick, and I'm going home and take care of him. See, because I knew Russell was sick at this point. A point later on, I decided he wasn't sick. He was just a son of a bitch. But at this point, I thought he was sick. And I thought I could handle it. And it was my duty to handle it. So I went home. I'd been home for six months when Russell had a wedding for one of the lawyers in town, 50 miles, 60 miles outside our town. He was marrying a girl from another town, but they wanted Russell to have the wedding. And it was February, and there was a blizzard. And we left about noon on Saturday to go to that wedding. Russell had the wedding. We went to the reception. Now, this is Illinois. They have liquid receptions, open bar receptions. After Russell had had a few drinks, I thought it was my duty to tell him that he'd had enough to drink. That was on my schedule of things to do for the day. And he said, listen, just because you don't know how to have a good time, leave me alone. Well, now, at this point, I did not know how to have a good time. I was totally obsessed with another person's illness. Totally obsessed. When I got up in the morning, I didn't say, well, it's a nice morning. What will I do with the kids today? What will I do for Barbara today? I got up and said, oh, my God, another day. What will Russell do today and what will I do about it? That was my life. So I thought at this point, at this wedding reception, it was time to take him home. 
because really it was Saturday evening. And at this point in his alcoholism, he had been locking himself in his room by the middle of afternoon on Saturday, so he wasn't so hungover on Sunday morning. And it was lock-up time. That was a deep, dark family secret. I don't know how long I stayed out in that car. Pretty soon the parking lot started to empty out, so I thought maybe things were breaking up. And I stayed out there and cried. I decided I'd better go in, see what was happening. So I went in, and a, one of the gals in the wedding party met me at the door and said, I have been looking all over for you. Would you please have your husband give me my shoes? I want to go home. And I was glad to do it. And in the car we got, and I said, you cannot drive, Russell. I don't know how many drinks you've had because I've been out in the car, but I know you've had too many. That made me feel guilty, too, that I didn't know how many drinks he had. You know, I should have known that. And he said, you are not driving my car. And he got in. There was still a blizzard. And he got out on the road. And there's not a whole lot of cars out at 2 o'clock in the morning, which is what it was now. Uh, and the ones that are out there are probably in the same state he was because they were we were on the wrong side of the road, but so were they. So we got by quite a few cars that way. And it through the stoplights, went through four or five stoplights, and every one of them said stop when we went through them. And finally I said, Russell, the next stoplight you come to, you're going to let me drive or you're going to let me out. Well, he liked the second idea better. So the next stoplight we got to was green, and he stopped, and he let me out. And I thought, he'll be back. Guess what? I'm 60 miles from home in a blizzard, have on a long dress, a fur, a little beaded bag with a lipstick, a comb, cigarettes. I smoked now. It's getting wicked. See, Russell drink at me and I'd smoke at him. And we just played these wicked games. And... Not one red cent. I went into a filling station and made a phone call. Two friends of ours in where we lived, 60 miles away, members of our congregation. And I think at this point, be wise for me to interject that to the 1,800 people in our congregation, Russell was the Pope. He could do no wrong. Whatever he said was gospel. You know, he could have told those people the Pope was a Methodist and they'd have believed him. And they'd have notified the Vatican. And that's the way it was. And so I talked to these people and they said, um, well, where is Pastor? That was his name, Pastor. And I said, well, he went home. Well, why did he? Well, he was drunk. Oh, my goodness, poor pastor. We'll come and get you. It's the least we can do for him. So they came and got me. By the time they got there, I had been talking to this young boy who had lent me the dime to make the call and had a pretty good conversation with him. I thought, 
You know, this is the first person that's talked to me like I was normal since I don't remember when. Maybe I need to talk to these friends on the way home. Tell them what's really happening. So I did. All the way home. The lady, who is still a very dear friend of mine, was crying. The man was angry. And we got home, and there was Russell's car in the driveway. And the man said, if our pastor were as drunk as you said he was, he would never have gotten home. Goodbye. We'll see you in the morning. So in the morning, for early service, we had two services, 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock. And between the two services, I always baked things on Saturday, and people would drop in for coffee at the parsonage. And these two people were two that always came. So it was coffee time at the parsonage, and in walked these two friends that had picked me up last night. And Paul took me over to the side and said, we're going to have to do something about you. Pastor can't take much more of this. And I said, what did he tell you? And he told me the ridiculous things he had told him. And I decided I wasn't going to say anything to anyone anymore. Outside my home. Inside my home. I'll tell you what. Not one calm moment. And if you recall, we now have eight children there. Two are off to college. But those are the two that I always thought if they were home, they could have helped. Now, I know now they couldn't. None of us were going to fix this. My oldest son, at one point, uh, I took him and I shook him. And I said, Daniel, 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 can't you see what's happening here? And he said, yeah, you're shaking the liver out of me. And that's all that was happening. And that bothered me. I was going to make those children see what was happening. I had no control over anybody outside. They all thought that the cheese was off my cracker and they weren't listening to me or nothing. They were tolerating me. And I was no longer talking to them about anything except superficial things. But I wanted my children to understand. And I wondered why they didn't. I'm going to give you one little story that might help you understand why they didn't. Those of you in Al-Anon probably know why they didn't. Because I didn't know I was sick. My behavior was very, very sick. I used to drag Russell upstairs after he passed out at night. In this huge mansion of a parsonage we had. I would stay up until whatever hour it happened to be when he passed out and drag him upstairs and put him in bed. Most nights, I would get him to the first landing and he would stiffen up and slide back down again and laugh at me. Now, what do you suppose I did standing on that landing? I preached him a sermon in very loud words and made all kinds of threats, none of which I ever carried out, and woke all the children, and they laid in their beds like this, saying, poor dad. And I didn't know, and my children didn't understand what was happening. They knew what was happening to mom.
My youngest son was confirmed in May of 1974. We always have a big confirmation party. There are three big days in the lives of our children. Their baptism, their confirmation, and their marriage. And confirmation's a big one. Timothy was being confirmed by his father in a group of 40-some young people. Now, we had 50 people coming to dinner. And a month before, Russell had bought eight cases of beer and about 12 gallons of wine and had set them downstairs in the cellar. We didn't have any kind of liquor cabinet with help anymore. We had a cellar. I was busy cooking the day before confirmation, and my older son came up and said, Mom, there is no beer, and uh, there is no wine. And I said, well, who opened it all? And he looked me in the eye and said, I don't know, Mom, but it doesn't matter who opened it. It's who drank it that matters. And I knew what he was saying to me. My behavior was such that my children thought I had the drinking problem. I was the one that woke them with the shouting every night. And I was the one that was totally obsessed with another person's problem. That I was insane. I didn't know there was anything else I could do. Well, anyway, after that party, Russell left the next day for a doctor-advised vacation in South Carolina with his brother. The doctor felt he needed to get away and get some rest. Well, he got rest in Kentucky and in Tennessee, and he never knew he was any of those places, but that's his story. That day, I decided I had to get out. And I think those of you in Al-Anon will understand that what my son had said was one of the things that made me make that decision. That, you know, no matter what I do or what I say, this is what my kids are going to think and I won't have. The man I had loved, the man I had born eight children for, I now felt I hated. And I didn't like to feel that way. I wanted Not only did I hate him, I wanted my kids to hate him and thought it was their duty to hate him. If they weren't going to hate him, I was going to get out of there. So I went to a lawyer. Not that lawyer we had the wedding for. There's seven lawyers in our town. Six of them were Lutherans. I went to the other one. Because any of the Lutheran ones would have put me away. Taking care of me until pastor got home. And I talked to him. About, I said I wanted a divorce. And he said, no, 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 you, you really don't. And I said, oh, yes, I do. He said, well, now, listen, this is not going to be in the papers. It's not going to be on the radio. This is going to blow this town up. And I said, hey, I know that. I've known for a long time there's going to be a big explosion, and I'm going to be in the middle of it, but it's time for it to happen. I can't wait for it any longer. He said, don't, don't get a divorce. I said, well... Okay, uh, Frank, a separation? No, 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 don't do that either. 
I said, I'm, I'm getting out of here, taking the three little kids and I'm getting out of here. He said, well, I understand that. He said, let me talk to Russell when he gets back. He said, uh, let's just get, we'll have him sign some papers. He'll give you some support money till we get this worked out. He said, Russell is an alcoholic. And I thought, good, I'm glad somebody's calling him nasty names except me, you know. And he said, my father was an alcoholic. There's help for him. I said, there's no help for Russell. I've offered him every kind of help there is. There is no help for Russell. And he said, yes, there is. Let me talk to him. Have him call me when he gets back. I said, okay. I got in the car and I thought, That's the first thing I did on my own without asking Russell's permission for myself, by myself, responsible thing I have done and I don't know how long I wonder what else I can do before Russell gets home. And I thought of this little brown paper envelope that I had received some time back. had a lot of literature in it. I had opened it up. Read through it real well because I thought there'd be something in there telling me how to make Russell stop drinking. And when there wasn't, I'd put it away. But I remembered where it was and I went home and I got that out. And it was all Al-Anon material. And it listed a bunch of meetings here, there, and everywhere. And I chose one 15 miles from home and was high as a kite thinking I'm doing something all by myself, all for myself. I'm going to be okay. But if I go 15 miles away and pass up three or four meetings on the way, then nobody will know me. See. I don't know why I cared if anybody knew me. I was ready to leave, and but I didn't want anybody to know me. Well, I chose that meeting. There were three people from our congregation there done the same thing. In Illinois, if you want to go to an AA or an Al-Anon meeting where nobody knows you, go in your hometown. There won't be a soul you know there. Well, they opened with readings from this lovely little one-day-at-a-time book. And I thought, boy, that sounds nice. And they read a little prayer. They called the Serenity Prayer. And I thought, I know that prayer. It's up on my bulletin board at home. It was. I have the faintest idea what it meant, but it sounded good to me. It was one of my favorites. And I thought, well, maybe I belong in this group. Then they asked if there were any newcomers. And there were four of us. This was a big group. They said, ask if any of them had anything that they wanted to say. There was one. And I monopolized that whole meeting. And I talked. And I cried. And I said, now tell me what to do about it. You know, please tell me what to do about it. And they cried. And I can't tell you what it meant to me to be sitting there with those people. And some of them were crying. And they were hugging me. And they were telling me, don't make any decisions. Come to meetings. Get well enough to make a decision that you're not making in this kind of a state of mind. We won't tell you what decision to make. We want to ask you to come and get well. And they gave me that little blue book. 
little blue, blue books are not free literature in Al-Anon. There are one thing we charge for. But the lady that led that meeting said, I want you to have this book as a gift from me. And I thought that was wonderful. I went home and put it in a drawer. I love books. I treasure books. I didn't want it to get dirty. And then Russell called. Hi, how are you? And I said, I'm more sober than you. And that's about how our conversations went, you know. He said, well, I got to jeans today. And I said, well, that's good. I said, but before, I thought, now before he says anything, I'm going to let him know what's going on in my life for a change. And he's not going to believe me because I've made all these crazy threats for so many years. But I'm going to tell him, and I'm going to tell him so fast he can't interrupt me. So I'm starting with the lawyer, and I'm going on and on and on. And he said, and then he said, he said, and I said, and when you come home, you need to go to Frank, and you need to sign. He said, I'm not coming home. I said, what do you mean you're not coming home? He said, I am not coming home. I said, not till when? He said, not ever. And I said, but you're my husband. You're the father of these children. I'm not coming home. I said, well, you're the pastor of this church. I'm not coming home. I said, well, you can't just not come home. And he said, oh, yes, I can. I just resigned. And I said, but we're living in the parsonage. We have to have some place to live. And blah, blah, blah. And on and on I'm going. And finally he says, you cannot get blood out of a turnip. Good night. Well, now I realized that it was true. And I thought, okay, I need to change my plans. And guess what? The next morning, one of these beautiful people from that Alan group called me and said, Barbara, I hope we'll see you again next Tuesday. And if you'd like to call me or talk to me about anything, Please do that. And I said, I really appreciate that, but I won't need Alnon, thank you. I'm not going to be living with a drunk anymore. Well, we gathered up everything in that big house, everything that was Russell's, and a lot of things that were other people's, and had a three-day garage there. <clears throat> and I moved with my three youngest children to Cincinnati, Ohio, where my sister lived to start a new life. Now, we never did do anything legal. We never did go back to a lawyer, neither did Russell. We just parted. I went to Cincinnati. Lived in a little shack down on the river. Rat and roach infested. And went on welfare. That was tough, but you do it if you're going to feed your kids, you feed them any way you can. Got my kids enrolled in school. Got a job. And was going to make things better. Got a job in dentistry. First job I applied for. Still in dentistry. I love it. And we were getting along pretty well. The kids were happy. And it was tough for the kids. They had come from this denial home up on the hill, this mansion where everything was supposed to be beautiful and were well-dressed and top-notch kids in school to going to Cincinnati and being those kids on welfare down by the river. But they were happy. 
We had an argument in that little shack. We got in a circle and held hands and said, We're all we've got, God. We're all we've got. And there were hugs and kisses all around. And one day, there was a knock on the door. And there stood Russell. Now, it had been nine weeks since I had seen Russell. And in my illness, I was hoping that Russell was really in big trouble someplace. So that somebody else would find out what it was really like to live with Russell. And there he stood and he looked pretty good. And I said, what do you want? He said, I'd like to see my children. And I'm going to tell you something I had in that house. We had a caricature made of Russell at uh, one of these places we were going while we were still putting on airs and acting like everything was all right. And uh, he had his collar on. And it's really quite a lovely caricature. I still have it. Uh, and in the little cloud at the side, it says, I'm not a father. I have eight kids. That was hanging over my toilet in Cincinnati. And, but I wasn't sick. Within five minutes, I had let him in, and he showed me a little card. It had these 12 wonderful little ideas on there. I read those. I said, that, that sounds great. He said, well, you know, I've been um, for help, and uh, I'm sober now. And I did it through all those steps. I worked all those steps. I said, that's wonderful. He said, so I want to come back now. I took him back. And in my illness, thought now everything was all right. But he wasn't working. And that got to me. Because I wasn't getting welfare anymore either. You have a man in the house, you don't get it. And I called John as soon as I said, Russell's back, so you'll have to take me off the welfare roll. But I still got food stamps. And Russell wasn't working. And so I'd nag him about that a little. Like if I had dinner ready, I'd call the kids to dinner and he'd come waddling in and I'd say, Hey, if any man will not work, neither shall he eat. I did not call you. After what you did. Now, this is my worst illness. I had the after what you did worse than anybody you'll ever heard of. So, I'd say, go out and get a job. And you know what he told me? He said that this group he belonged to had told him to take it easy. Whoopee. Well, he'd come and go and come and go. I'd kick him out and he'd come back. I got to where the, it was the kids that said, Mother, do what you want, but please take him back or kick him out. I don't like not knowing when I'm coming home from school, whether dad's home or whether he's gone. So I decided on kick him out. 
He was gone for a week. I came home one Monday from work. And there he was standing at the door. And I said, what are you doing here? I thought you were in Idaho looking for a job. He said, well, I came back for a meeting. I said, small group, all the way from Idaho to Cincinnati. And he said, well, yeah, there's another group, too, I thought maybe you'd like to go to. And I said, oh, there he is. And he said, yeah, it's called Al-Anon. I said, I know all about that. I've been there. He said, well, wouldn't you like to go? I said, well, what time is the meeting? I need to get out of my uniform. He said, it's Thursday. And this is Monday. I said, come on in. Now, from Monday to Thursday, we had planned to renew our marriage vows. Because I said, I feel like I'm living in sin every time I let you in this house. Our relationship was so dead. And in four days, he courted and wooed me, and I was going to marry him. Then we went to the meeting. You guys nearly blew that. I went into my al meeting, you know what they talked about? Detachment. And I got out of the car and... Russell said, how'd you like that meeting? I said, well, uh, be okay if we weren't planning to renew our marriage vows, but they're talking about detachment. I don't need that. That's how little I understood about detachment. I couldn't live without it, boys and girls. But I didn't know what detachment was then. thought that was a pretty tacky thing to say. So I didn't go for a while. I kept on with the after what you did. And then one time, one day, I decided we don't have any social life. Sometimes I don't even have money to buy oil for the furnace. And these meetings are free. And we can go there together. I think I'll go back. Anyway, I kind of like the look on the faces of some of those people there. They look pretty good. I want to say something to you people, UAAs, before I say anything else. We have a group in Montgomery that we just started. It's been going on for about 15 or 16 months now, where AAs and Al-Anons meet together. Officially, it's an AA group, but it is a discussion group. On the books, it's an AA group. And we have more fun, we Al-Anons. Letting you AAs know that, hey, we've got a program, too. How surprised they were that we had the steps. And how surprised they were that our program was for us, that we don't go there to talk about you. We have beginner's meetings for that because... Ladies and gentlemen, there are a few meetings where people have to get some things off their chest. But that doesn't happen in our big meetings. We're there to grow. In our beginner's meetings, we teach those people that alcoholism is a disease, that you did not cause it, 
that you cannot cure it. And I want to tell you, while I'm telling you that, that one of the best things I learned in my beginner's group in Cincinnati was that Russell hurt. That's right. That's one of the best things I learned. Because I didn't think he hurt. I thought, here he's done everything he very well wanted to, and he's coming back and getting all the gravy again, and everybody's patting him on the back because he's sober, big deal. You know, and that's all he expected out of himself on any given day was, hey, I didn't drink today. And I said, well, you didn't do anything else either. And I was sick. But that's why I interrupted myself here was to tell you, I I will put our program up against AA's program any day because we're every bit as ill as you are. But you have one thing up on us. You can take that very first giant step in a minute. You can put down that boost. We don't have that first giant step that keeps reminding us we're on our way, we're on our way, we're on our way. We didn't drink today. It takes us a little longer to recognize some of these things that tell us we're on our way, we're getting better. Well, I knew that these people in this group that I decided to go back to were on their way someplace. I liked them. And I went back with Russell one time because it's someplace we could go together. And when I came out of that meeting, I was very upset when I went. Russell said, well, how did you like the meeting? And I told him, and I need to tell you first why I told him what I did. After that meeting was over, I went up to one of the gals that in the two meetings I'd been to in Cincinnati, I just knew would understand everything I told her and would tell me the right thing. I just knew it. I knew it by the way she looked at me. I knew it by some of the absolutely brilliant things she said in the meetings. And when I say brilliant, I mean there is nothing more brilliant in the Al-Anon program than the simplicity of it. Reads easy. And it works hard. But the healthier you get, the easier it works. And I had said to her, Julie, I just had an awful time at home tonight. And she said, well, what happened? I said, well, Russell said he had the colossal nerve to say, I don't really think you've forgiven me. And she said, oh, and what did you do? And she said, I said, well, I told him, I listed for him all the things I had forgiven him for, plus I'm supporting him, plus, 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 plus. And she said, then what? And I said, I went upstairs and cried. And she said, and what did he do? I said, I don't know. I guess he watched TV. And she said, well, I suppose he would. He probably felt better. Why did you do that to yourself? And I said, wait a minute, Julie. She said, why did you do that to yourself? She was trying to make me feel responsible for that fiasco. Can you believe it? And I said, well, what do you, what do you think I should have done? She said, well, 
We don't give advice, Barbara, but I can just tell you what I'd have done. I'd have said, I'd have told my husband that I was sorry he felt that way. And I thought, big deal. So when I'm out in the car and Russell's saying, how'd you like the meeting tonight? I said, uh, I liked it real well. I, I really did. I'm, I'm going to continue to come back because I think they have some things that can really can help me. He said, well, I sure am glad because I don't think you've forgiven me. And I said, I'm sorry you feel that way. And he's never said that since. <laughs> now, I'm going to more of these meetings and learn more of those cute little sayings. I'll tell you what. And I did. And I learned, let go and let God. And I learned, think. And I learned something that was very important to me. How important is it? Because I was to a point in my life where everything was a crisis. Where I expected no good to come of anything. My disease was spiritual too. I continued to pray as I had prayed through the alcoholic years and informed God of everything Russell was doing and asking him when he was going to make him quit. I never once prayed to God that I would, you know, to help me discover what was happening to me, to lead me somewhere where I could be helped. I would, God had better punish Russell and he had better do it pretty soon. And I would go to Russell and I would say, aren't you frightened to death to stand in that pulpit every Sunday morning? You know, the Lord says, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, we'll enter the kingdom of heaven. I said, aren't you scared to death? And he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I'd say, when, when, when? And I thought I still had a relationship with God. I had turned God into someone who loved me, pokey as he was, but surely must hate Russell. How could he otherwise? And why didn't he do something about it? Why did he do nothing about it? There was an AA program, there was an Al-Anon program, and they were both offered to both of us, and we did not want them. The Al-Anon program is God's greatest gift to me. I want to repeat that because I mean it. God's greatest single gift to me, aside from his son Jesus Christ, is the Al-Anon program. And I thank him right now for it. I learned what to do with the thing that was destroying me most quickly, resentment. I learned that I could forgive myself and that I could forgive and forget with Russell. I could say to Russell, I forgive you. But something would happen and it would all come back like it was happening right now. And through prayer and through this program and through learning to be good to myself, I really got rid of those resentments because they were killing me. And they were killing any chance Russell and I had of having a good relationship again. 
And we do. Yesterday, Russell just got home from Florida where he was with my mother. We've had how many weddings since that blow up? We only had one child married then and we've got six married now. We've had five weddings. We've had 13 grandchildren. And I'll tell you what, every time one of those wonderful, beautiful things happens in our life, I think, what would this be like if AA and Al-Anon hadn't taught us what love is, what forgiveness is, that we're okay, we had a problem, that we were powerless over, but there is help. When I came in this program, I was a plowed field. I didn't know who I was. I certainly wasn't anybody I had ever been before. And as long as that field remained plowed and nothing was put into it, more weeds grew and more weeds grew. And I came into the Al-Anon program and I found here you beautiful people. Some of you would plant seeds. Some of you would pull weeds. And pretty soon, I had the most beautiful garden that you had planted. And I thank you for it. And I love you for it. And I want you to know that whoever said that you cannot make a silk purse out of a sow ear never met up with you folks. Thank you. After a short break, we continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. Our first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website at therecovery.show slash 340, is Cheryl Crow with Every Day is a Winding Road. Eric wrote to me saying, I don't know when, but you got to fit this in. And I think you'll agree with me that Barbara's life was really full of winding roads. A little bit of the chorus here. Every day is a winding road. I get a little bit closer. Every day is a faded sign. I get a little bit closer to feeling fine. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery in the past week or so? I was listening to a podcast about COVID-19 and the pandemic. And in this particular episode, the host was quoting a couple of surveys that tried to measure levels of depression, anxiety, and trauma in the U.S. population. One survey that was taken in late March to early April, which is near the beginning of the pandemic in the U.S., or the impact of it anyway, found that three times as many people reported symptoms of depression than they did a few years earlier. That's a lot, three times as many. In another survey taken in June, 40% of the people responding reported at least one symptom of trauma, anxiety, and depression. So the host mentioned that these things that, that are affecting us here, fear, loneliness, and exhaustion. I think that list sounds really familiar. I know I lived with all of these when active alcoholism was in my life. 
before I had the tools of a recovery program. I think to some extent, these have all come back in this, what some people are calling the new normal. I need to learn how to apply my recovery tools to this. I have feared that I or someone that I love will get this disease, will die of it. Fear of loss of the things that were normal in my life before the pandemic and will very likely be normal in my life afterwards. But I don't have them now. Loneliness because I can't get together with people the way I used to. I can maybe see some of them on Zoom, but much less socialization. And for me as an extrovert, that's hard. Exhaustion. This has been going on for six months now, and I'm tired of it. I'm just tired of it. The host went on and he talked about some ways in which we can fight these symptoms, fear, loneliness, and exhaustion. And again, these sound really familiar to me. The first thing that he mentioned was to reach out for help. Reach out to others for help and reach out to others in help. And I think about the key to 12-step recovery. As they say for AA, the key to Alcoholics Anonymous is one alcoholic working with another. And the key to recovery in Al-Anon is one Al-Anon working with another so that both can become well. Both of us become healthier. Both of us become saner as we work together in recovery. So reach out. Don't isolate. Even if it's hard, because it's really important. Another tool that he mentions is get outside. If you are going crazy, if you are feeling confined in your same four walls, and I guess your locality allows, that's always an issue, get outside. Just go for a walk and combining this with the first one, go for a walk appropriately distanced and masked with someone else. Combine the healing power of nature with the healing power of being with another person. Reconnect with the world. And if you live alone, maybe you can create what I guess is starting to be called a pod or a bubble with one or two other people who are also alone so that you're not completely alone in this, so that you can be face-to-face. You can share a meal. You can have a direct conversation. All of those things are important. Take care of yourself. Get enough sleep. Eat well. Get some exercise. I find myself stress eating. That's not so good. Exercise, like the walk. It doesn't have to be anything serious. Just move a little bit because that really, for me, helps to pull me out of at least a small level of depression, a small level of sadness. There are a lot of small things we can do. And each small thing helps a little. And when you do several small things, it helps more than a little, like maybe a lot. What are you doing? And what can you be doing? Those are my thoughts for this week. Diana left us a voicemail wondering why she continues to fight for things that she really doesn't want. Hi guys, I had to share. This is Diana from the West Coast. 
I have been in the season for six months of complete misery and know that I am probably one of the most optimistic people, but I could not figure out why I am so freaking miserable. And it finally hit me today that I've been giving attention and fighting for and giving focus to things that I don't even want. And so case in point, I have a biological father who has chosen not to be in my life or the life of my daughter. And I have tried and pushed and given my all in this attempt to try to forge this relationship that somehow my daughter was denied this grandfather. And I just need to make this happen. Meanwhile, he's ignoring for 10 years. And finally, it dawned on me today. Do I even want him in my life? No, he's not a good person. He hurt me. Of course, he's going to hurt her. And it just became so clear. I'm fighting for something and putting energy into something that I don't even want. Point number two, I've had this awesome job and career for the last five years. And about six months ago, I found myself transitioned to this role almost by accident. And it has been some of the toughest six months of my life. I'm just really unhappy at this job. I took a big pay cut, um, but that wasn't even it. It wasn't the work per se or even the money. It was the people. And so it's just an obstacle after obstacle and I keep fighting through it. And it's, I'm just so miserable. I just, I'm unhappy. And it dawned on me today, after another big obstacle, why am I fighting for this when I don't even want it? It's a really good question. So I began to write a list to make it clear to my own mind and heart. And I encourage you guys to do this. What do I want? What do I not want? So that we can make sure that we really are giving our focus and our attention and our energy to those things that matter. I wrote a book and I would like to record an audiobook. So that's something I'm going to give focus to. My daughter and I have written some books. I'd like to publish one. I'm going to give focus to that. I like to lose weight. I'm going to give focus to that. Definitely want a new job. So that's number one on the list. I like to finish my master's degree. Okay. These are things I want. And you got these things over here I don't want. I don't want this job. (laughs) That much is clear at this point. Crystal. Okay, I don't want to have to chase people in relationship, particularly my father, who doesn't care to be in my life. It's not good for my soul. And really, is he worthy to be in my life? Probably not. What I don't want, a tired body, a weary mind, headaches because I'm stressed out at a job that I hate. So I'd encourage you guys, what are you focusing on? And what is in your life that you are giving energy and attention to that is just a drain that you could just turn that thing off, turn your focus into the right direction of things that you actually care and want. All right. Thanks for letting me share. And she asked us to make a list of things I want and things I don't want. And what is on your lists? Alina sent a couple of shares on unmanageability and intimacy. Hi, my name's Alina. I just wanted to share on episode 87 on unmanageability. I was reading the overview and it says, do you find yourself running in circles? Do you obsess over things you can't change? And do you lie awake worrying? I guess recently I shared not too long ago that my qualifier had a relapse after 
21 months clean. And I had, when I had shared prior to that, I was talking about the three C's and how I used to handle his relapses. And it's weird how I like mentioned it and then it happened. And even though it's been 21 months, that feeling, that pit in your stomach, or at least mine was there. And I know that I definitely was worried. I was scared, but it was different for me this time. I don't know what it was. It was just, I did worry, but I know that he has his higher power working for him and I have mine and he's not in a program and I am. And so I feel like I was grateful to have that and also to have Al-Anon friends to reach out to. And definitely I feel like I did worry. I worried that he could lose his job. I was trying to think of all these things, but I wasn't really obsessing about him. It was a thought and I just let it go. Like I thought about it and I let it go because there's really nothing I can do. It's out of my hands and I'm powerless basically. And so I remember these things. I did go to, I was on a Zoom meeting and I realized after I shared and I did share about the relapse and I didn't even cry or break down. I was sad. It's not like I didn't feel anything. The past relapses I would be sharing and I'd be like crying and I'd be so distraught. But this time it was a little different and I just can thank the program. I'm not really sure exactly what else to do, but I know also that the uh, description said, do you feel uncomfortable or draw a blank when asked what it is you really want? And does a dark cloud of despair or creeping depression sometimes seem to appear from nowhere to weigh you down? And do you feel guilty or selfish whenever you say no? Some of these things I guess I do have experiences with, especially having trouble with saying no. I realize that no is a complete sentence and I don't have to explain myself, but sometimes it's really hard because I feel like I almost either have to explain myself or I have to have a compromise. Like I can say no, but I can do this for you or no, but I can do that for you. And I know sometimes that's not healthy. It was hard for the relapse, especially when my qualifier's mother was out of town and she's blowing up my phone and she's not in a program and she was blowing up my phone with messages and calling and just asking like details of what was going on because she wasn't here and she was basically blaming him for ruining her vacation and ruining this for her and just some of the things that she was thinking and saying was really hard to hear and I was trying to be neutral about everything, but support her too. And I know she's not in a program. It just made me see things for what they really were. And I, even though I really wanted to isolate really bad, I did get a little quieter, more quiet maybe when it came to responding to people's messages or anything like that. But I don't think I really completely isolated. I might've been just thinking a little bit more and just in my trying to really take care of myself and focus on me. I did slip a little as far as not working out. I did get plenty of rest. I was still up getting out of bed. I did laundry, did stuff like that. So I, I wasn't consumed by worry and stuff like that, but I was concerned. Let's see what else did it say. Can you identify one or two extreme feelings such as anger or fear and you know, that all, I was feeling all those things too, but I'm just grateful that my qualifiers, after four days of being out, 
he's decided to be clean again and his thoughts are becoming a little more rational. I'm still worried, but I can't obsess about it. And I'm just hoping that I don't start to have trust issues like I usually do. So I'm working on that, focusing on that, writing in my journal. I did reach out to a newcomer. So all these things do help me deal with what's going on inside. And it does help. I wanted to share on episode 88, it was on intimacy. I know that the overview also had a few good points about, have you found someone in the program that you can trust with your secrets? And what are your barriers to intimacy with your loved ones? And just wanting to know like what exactly intimacy means or actually what it is. But I know that it says in here, the vocabulary.com said that intimacy is a, is closeness with another person, like the intimacy that develops between friends as you tell one another your life story and all your secrets and dreams for the future. The one thing with the program that I really like in meetings, and it's harder to do with the Zoom meeting since we're in quarantine, but I know that when I would go in-person meetings, I would try to reach out to someone if they said something or shared something that really resonated with me or if it affected me or if I could totally relate or if it just made me think differently. I would always want to reach out to that person, whether it be in person, like after the meeting or if it was on a voicemail or a text. I just felt like it was okay to share that. And that's, I guess, some form of intimacy. But I know that when it really happened was when I had a really close Al-Anon friend and I could tell her so much and she didn't judge and she was very, I don't know, it just seemed very comfortable. And I know that she did the same with me and it was like, we built this trusting relationship. I honestly don't know what I would do without her because I feel like I'm, she's always there and I'm always there for her and we're never alone. And sometimes you just need that validation of sharing something like you're feeling or something that's going on in your life, whether it's good, bad, frustrating, whether you're angry, whether you feel sad for no reason, when there's no judging and it's just a good feeling. Sometimes you can't do that with just everyday people at work or close friends because sometimes you feel like, oh, they're going to get sick of hearing me talk about certain things or they're going to think I'm strange. I guess that is a good intimate relationship. And I know definitely with my sponsor that has grown a lot too. And I think working the steps and meeting and just having someone that you, I don't know, I guess you really look at their experience, strength and hope and you just want that for yourself. And so I feel that way about my sponsor. And I know that it seems like for me, it took a lot longer to build up a trust or an intimacy with her only because I felt like she's my sponsor and oh my gosh, I have to be perfect and I have to be a certain way and I have to you know, work my program. I have to pray about it. If I don't present things a certain way to her, she's going to judge me and that's not the case. I've learned that we can build trust together. And I think the more she opens up with me, the more comfortable I feel opening up to her and realizing that she's the same as I am. She has her days where she struggles with certain feelings or is hard on herself like I am. And we can relate to a lot of stuff and we can get through it. And I just like that she shares how she 
works through these issues or problems or even, you know, how she tackles them. It's just nice to have that person there in your life too. And also intimacy with my husband and my qualifier too. That has changed a lot. I think it's only going to get better as I take care of myself and I love myself first. I think that's a huge difference, intimacy with myself. So that's just something that I struggle with probably the most. And I know I definitely need to work on that. Anyways, thank you for letting me share. And uh, I hope you guys have a good day. Bye. Upcoming still is an episode including your feedback about episode 337, Activism and Recovery. The emails have slowed down. I think it's time to do that one. We welcome your thoughts. You can join the conversation. Leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or questions. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can call right now, 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation directly from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or an email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions. And if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, links to the readings, which there weren't any this week. I'll put a link to the podcast I was talking about and videos for the music, along with links to some other recovery podcasts and websites. I'm going to take a little break before looking at your feedback. And the second musical selection, I got this from this podcast I mentioned. He always ends with a song, the lyrics of a song. And this week, that song is You Got a Friend, which was written by Carol King and was popularized by James Taylor. And I have a video of them performing it together. Having a friend is so important in recovery, and especially now, as so many of us are off balance because of events in the world and in our lives. Alanon teaches us also how to balance being a supporting friend against overhelping and enabling. Some of the words here, when you're down and troubled and you need some love and care and nothing is going right, close your eyes and think of me and soon I will be there. To brighten up even your darkest night, you just call out my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call and I'll be there. You've got a friend. Catching up on my back emails here, and we'll share a few of them today. A listener sent in a share about a resentment that she was feeling, and there were a lot of personal details in this voicemail, so I'm not sharing it directly. I did ask her if I could paraphrase her share, and, and she agreed to that. This listener, who I will call Sue, not her real name, is resentful that several members of her Al-Anon group, which has been meeting electronically, decided to start a new in-person meeting even though the group had decided in their group conscience to continue meeting electronically. Sue is resenting this action in several ways. One, that they apparently went against the group conscience. That she was not included. She found out afterwards that they had gone off on their own. She feels betrayed, and she's feeling the loss of these longtime members to the recovery of the Zoom meeting, saying, for example, the Zoom meeting had three new members recently who missed out on their wisdom and their strength and hope. Sue also recognizes that she cannot control the opinions and the actions of others, but is still angry and resentful. 
She concludes, This COVID period and being in service has really shown me that using the traditions and concepts through managing the ever-changing idea of how we set up our meetings for the greater good of everyone who needs Al-Anon. To be available all the time for newcomers is really challenging because we're suddenly all independently needing to use the program to recover ourselves, and all the mixed array of emotions and feelings that we have around this really difficult time. And then Sue wrote to me later, said, I've had some time to reflect since sharing with you. It has been an amazing insight into how the traditions work for my own self and for the groups. I do feel that I am still in fixing mode and controlling mode as I reflect on this share, but I am feeling okay, less beating myself up for not doing it harder with this. Progress on my part. I'll be keen for more insight and wisdom from other members. And when I wrote back to Sue after the first one, I said, it sounds like you are using the program here in your awareness that this is really about trying to control somebody else's decisions. And I think she agrees here. But what do you think? What do you think about this? I also quoted the little quip that the only thing required to start a new AA meeting is two alcoholics with a resentment and a coffee pot which is a little harsh, but I think illustrates that we don't have control over other people's decisions and that all I can do is keep on doing what I think is right for me. Roseanne responded to a question that was asked in a recent episode. She writes, During a recent episode, you asked if anyone knew of an agnostic version of Al-Anon. I attended a free seminar hosted by Hazel and Betty Ford, and at the end of it, they provided that info. Here's what I learned. There are alternatives to 12-step recovery programs such as smartrecovery.org, celebraterecovery.com, recoverydharma.org, refugerecovery.org, sobergrid.com. Back in episode 323, we talked to Josh about recovery dharma and refuge recovery. If you want to learn more about those programs, Roseanne continues with a modified serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one that I can, and the wisdom to know that is me. And I have definitely heard that version of the serenity prayer from friends in the program. She says, hope that helps. Thanks for writing, Roseanne. I have heard of some of these other recovery programs and and not some of them. Maybe that will be helpful to somebody who's having trouble with the 12 steps, but is looking for recovery. Susan says, Spencer, I wanted to thank you for the Recovery Show podcast, and in particular, this episode that I listened to today. I'm relatively new to Al-Anon, only since COVID quarantine pushed me to realize that I could no longer go on the way I had. My sister-in-law recommended Al-Anon, as my brother-in-law passed away from the disease of alcoholism. Like many others, I went to the Zoom meetings hoping for answers on how to cure my husband's alcoholism and was very confused by what I was hearing. I kept going back, though, got myself some literature, and scoured the internet for everything I could find and thankfully found your podcast. I have now listened to so many episodes, they have brought me peace and given me the redirection that I so often found myself needing when the chaos was becoming too much. I'm having a particularly difficult time with accepting that my husband has a disease and not just selfishly doing this without regard to myself or our children, so I decided to try and learn about it. I found a podcast, Sobercast, that has various speakers at AA conferences and have also started reading the free version of the big book. I used the search feature on your website today and by searching disease was directed to episode 285. 
It confirmed that I am going in the right direction by trying to learn more about the disease from the perspective of AA members in order to understand and have compassion for him. Thank you for all you do, Susan. Thank you for writing, Susan. Episode 285 was titled Contentment and Even Happiness. And I think I took that from the Al-Anon opening, which says we can have contentment and even happiness whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. Rockland writes, Hi, Spencer. I'm a frequent listener and often want to comment when I'm in the midst of an episode. However, since I tend to listen when I'm driving or walking, I forget by the time I'm home. So this isn't specific, but a general thank you for the recovery show, which is a significant contribution to my personal recovery path. I'm a solo parent working through the pandemic and a primary support for aging parents who live nearby. My dad, the alcoholic in my life, has cancer now and has been told by several doctors he needs to get sober before they can do the surgery he needs. He's weak and increasingly confused and forgetful. I have no idea if he'll be able to sober up enough for cancer treatment, and if he does, I suspect he'll return to drinking as soon as he's clear of the hospital. With all that going on in my life, Al-Anon is my lifeline to some serenity. My grandma kept a framed quote from Teilhard de Chardin on her wall. Framed in bright orange, it said, Joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. I'm celebrating two years in Al-Anon at the end of this month. Despite entering the program as a diehard agnostic, I now feel my higher power is here with me when I can smile, laugh, and take in beauty in the world around, even in this super challenging time. Rockland in Washington. Thank you for writing, Rockland. And as you have heard, dealing with aging parents, whatever their situation, uh, is stressful. So my best to you to take care of yourself first. Angelica says, Hello, Spencer. I wanted to first say thanks for hosting The Recovery Show. I'm a regular listener, and I really appreciate the wisdom shared by you, your guests, and other listeners. I was recently listening to episode 209, Mary Pearl T. on steps 6 through 9. I generally love hearing Mary Pearl's talks. There was a moment in this particular talk, though, where a very racist statement is made. She talks about a black man in her group that said he needed to reflect on whether or not he was being an N-word and change his behavior if that was the case. Now, I know she was referencing his words and experience. However, I find it problematic that was the example she chose to encourage folks to self-reflect and shift behavior when needed. I wonder if there's a way to offer a trigger warning or warn listeners that racist or discriminatory comments might be made in a pre-recorded talk to at least acknowledge the presence of potentially harmful comments or even edit moments like that out and skip over it altogether. Thank you so much for your service. I appreciate the show so much. Best, Angelica. That's a tough one, Angelica. I have made the decision that I do not edit pre-recorded talks. When I have a guest on the show, when I'm on the show myself, I edit uh, for clarity, for conciseness, and to remove words like um, but I don't do that with pre-recorded talks. I take them as given. And I think I take them as where that person is, was at the time they recorded it. Some of these are older and sensitivities were different then. But I think I've decided to, to let each person speak on their own. That's That has been my decision so far. Tony writes, Spencer, in October of 2019, I was given the gift of desperation. It came to light that my qualifying loved one had decided we were done after an 11-year relationship. We had been blissfully in love since the day we met, or so I thought. My attempts to fix, manage, and control were quickly leading me to insanity. 
It also became time to face my own addiction to food. In searching for answers, I was quickly pointed to Al-Anon and also decided to begin Overeaters Anonymous as well. Shortly after that, I discovered the recovery show. Just this week, I have finally caught all the way up. To say your work and the work of the other contributors saved my life seems like an understatement. The depth of knowledge, always expressed in a humble and kind manner, has enhanced my recovery in both programs. I've been able to gain and share a better understanding of the 12-step journey with my multiple meetings. I'm soon to reach nine months in recovery, and I'm working the steps with a sponsor. I've come to consider the recovery show a key part of my daily reprieve. Just like when you binge watch a show, I now find myself having to excitedly wait for the show's newest episodes. I wish you continued blessings in all of your affairs and look forward to reviewing some of my favorites. I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Yours in recovery, Tony. Thank you for writing, Tony. And again, I guess I apologize for the fact that I'm not managing to put out an episode every week during this pandemic time, as I talked about before, that uh, fear, loneliness, and isolation, and what's the other one? Exhaustion uh, is affecting my ability to to do this this thing that I love, really, this thing that helps me and so many others. But I keep keep on going, and like you said, you can go back and listen to any of the preceding 339 shows at any time you want to. Bjarni, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, writes from Iceland. Hi, I've been listening to your podcast and love it. It's in my morning routine. I was wondering if you could do an episode or discuss imposter syndrome. I think a lot of our family in Al-Anon suffers from it. I know I have it, and it really flared up working on my startup company, and I had to wait for months before I could contribute my part. I've got it. Most people I know have it. And I would say that the previous episode, 339, it's not your fault touches on this to some extent, this feeling that I'm not good enough and therefore it's my fault. I know I've mentioned that many times before. I don't have episode numbers off the top of my head. Jen writes, Hi Spencer, I really enjoyed your conversation with Lynn about grief. I'm a single mom who struggles with how much custody to give my active alcoholic ex-husband. He would like to have them more than every other weekend, which is our current custody schedule, and quite frankly, I'm able to work my program better and find more serenity when I have more time alone. I will also be working from home and homeschooling my kids in the fall due to school closures. I do know that they are often emotional messes when they come back from his house, though. I would love to hear Lynn's take on co-parenting with an alcoholic and being a single mom who is struggling to find serenity in the time of COVID. Thank you for your service, Jen. I wrote to Lynn. Lynn said, yes, I'd love to do that. So we can look forward to that uh, sometime in the, in the near future, I think. And if you'd like to contribute your experiences with co-parenting with an alcoholic, being a single parent, please do send us an email or a voice memo. Thanks. Ginny writes, hi, Spencer. I want to take a moment to thank you. I believe finding your podcast is actually changing my life. I'm a newcomer who has probably been to 15 meetings with the last time being well over two years ago. I will fully admit I probably was not in a place to receive the message, but I will add my meetings don't sound like anything you discuss. There seemed to be a lot of laughing and discussion of their qualifiers. They read steps and traditions, but I was still missing something. Your explanation of the program changed my heart. I'm a widow for almost 18 years and have developed a stronger spiritual connection with my God. My husband was my everything who developed a rare cancer at age 45 and was gone by 46. I know I'm overly sensitive to people complaining about their husbands for that reason. 
After much soul-searching, I have learned to accept it was God's plan, but found it harder to accept my daughter, my qualifier, who was also part of his plan. I've taken steps to separate from her when actively drinking, but that roller coaster still is very much present in my life. I so appreciated learning it was okay to love her through these times, yet setting boundaries. I could let go of the anger. Sounds simple enough when writing that, but your many podcasts have reinforced the concept for me. I'm so grateful. I'm learning to set boundaries without the anger. I know the road will still have challenging times. I do feel like I'm making progress, not perfect. I am higher risk for COVID, so have not sought out a meeting in my area. Not really sure how to connect on something like Zoom, but maybe that will come. In the meantime, your podcasts are my lifeline. I know you've had some podcasts focusing on parents of alcoholics, and I encourage those too. When I was going to different meetings, I never saw a parents meeting in my area, but hope to find one of those one day, either in person or electronically. I wasn't raised in an alcoholic family and can appreciate the children of alcoholics having a specific group, but hope there is something as specific for parents of alcoholics as well. Thank you for all you do. I'm blessed for finding your podcast, Ginny C. Well, thanks for writing, Ginny. I'm glad that you are finding recovery in the program at our website, therecovery.show slash online. There are some lists of online meetings. I have a link to the Al-Anon World Service page with electronic meetings, so you might go there. I don't know about whether you can find one that focuses on parents of alcoholics. Somebody who's listening right now, maybe you have such a meeting, and it is a Zoom meeting, and you can send me that information, and I can forward it to Ginny. Yamini says, Hi, just wanted to thank you for the marvelous work being done. I absolutely love this podcast, and I always look forward to the next episode. I'm also thankful to the member who introduced me to your podcast. Other than that, I just wanted to say what Esther shared about the uncertainty of meaning in a long-distance relationship and the resulting sense of powerlessness, wisdom to know the difference between the things I can and cannot change, was something... I could relate to immensely, and a whole lot of other stuff said on that episode was equally helpful and insightful for me. So thank you. Keep up the great service, one day at a time. Yamini. That was episode 338, Wisdom to Know the Difference with Esther. Brian writes, Hi, Spencer. Thank you so much for a great program. I'm really enjoying it. I have my weekly meeting by Zoom, but sometimes that is just not enough. Your podcast has become my meeting on the go. I'm relatively new to Al-Anon, just over a year in, and I'm working on step three. Your podcast has been a friendly companion as I work on this step. You have even managed somehow to make me eager to work on steps four and five. I've come to realize that the only way out of the pain is to go in and through and not out and around. Your podcast is a wonderful service to me, and I'm really appreciative of that. Thanks so very much, Brian. Yeah, that's what I discovered. The only way out is through. And a last note that really touched me. It is Tuesday, September 8th, 2 a.m. in Washington State. I was especially struggling with isolation, anxiety, and despair. The Hope episode brought me back to a better place. God bless you, Mary. We've had a couple of Hope episodes. Most recently was 328, which I think we titled Hope Means Possibility. There was an earlier episode on Hope as well. So if you are struggling and feeling hopeless, maybe one of those will be helpful to you too. Thanks. The last song selection is Why Worry by Mark Knopfler and Emmylou Harris, which you can listen to at therecovery.show slash 340. The video I have is from uh, them in concert singing the song. Here's some lyrics. 
Why worry? There should be laughter after pain. There should be sunshine after rain. These things have always been the same, so why worry now? listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.